Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Benmergi. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi. As always, I will tell you I'm not a rabbi, but if I was a rabbi, I wouldn't be that kind of rabbi. And I think you know what I mean, or maybe you don't. I am, however, ordained as a spiritual director. What that really involves is basically personal growth and spiritual. I try to help people get a spiritual fitness program together, whatever way that manifests itself. And, uh, you know, we live in an age where um, religion is out and uh, spiritual but not religious is in. And there's a lot of people in that camp. And I, I respect it. Uh, I also sometimes worry that uh, we, we've sort of turned it into shopping for God, a bit of a buffet where, ah, you know, I like a little bit of Buddhism every once in a while, a good walk in the park kind of helps. And uh, I'll go home for the high holidays and it'll all be all right. Um, but like wanting to have a six pack in your stomach, if you don't go to the gym, you don't get the six pack. It doesn't just happen. And in spiritual work, there's muscles that need to be moved and uh, they're beautiful muscles to move. So it's not a punishment in any way, but it's a deepening of the experience and giving yourself purpose and meaning in life, because sometimes we just feel alone making decisions and sometimes they feel random and it doesn't really work for us. So I do that. If you're interested in that, by the way, just go to my uh, email uh, or my Facebook page for Not That Kind of Rabbi, but the email is at ralphbenmergi at gmail.com and uh, we'll do a session, see how you like it. So I wanted to talk a little bit about Passover. Uh, which is kind of Jewish Christmas because you have to get together with your family and, you know, your uncle's there and he's always an embarrassment. You know, it's the same thing, but we do it at a different time of the year. Uh, so that's one of the things that I find interesting. But the thing I really find interesting about the Passover story is I, I'm not a literalist in any way, shape or form when it comes to the stories. Uh, I, I see them as metaphor and often about internal journey. So for instance, the Pharaoh character in the Exodus story, I don't see that as an external historical figure. And it, it was, it's fine. I see it as the inner tyrant, the one that doesn't let you go, is the critical and harsh judge of who you are and what you do, and hardens your heart to things. You know, we get hurt in life and we start to think about what we want to do about it. And in some cases, we just shrink. It's in Hebrew, it's called a klipah, the hard shell around your heart. And at certain holidays, one being uh, the Day of Atonement, we knock on our chest to sort of crack that open a bit. Uh, and as Leonard Cohen would say, you know, you get to the, um, to the spirit of people through the broken heart. But the Pharaoh is that, the tyrant. But there's other beautiful parts of the story. The most interesting thing about it as a freedom holiday is how reluctant the Israelites are to be free. Every chance they get, they just start complaining and fetching and just everything's like, what are you doing? And the guy doesn't come down from the mountain. Let's start the golden calf. You know, I'm hungry. I want some manna. As a matter of fact, I'd like to eat some meat. You know, why didn't we just go back to where we came from? At least we knew what our, what our confines were and our structures and we want order. We don't want freedom. Uh, and in this day and age, I find those to be interesting concepts in a world that's very tumultuous for a lot of people, especially in the Western democracies. We find ourselves in a situation where the temptations of fascism are real. The sense of order, the sense of security that we can get, 
just tell me that I'm still going to know where I'm going and what I'm doing. And the dominant culture will be the culture of that society. And America certainly has just certainly uh, has, has just gone through this. But we all have to be very aware of how many of these kinds of authoritarian regimes are there. So that's our pharaoh uh, issue, external and internal. And our freedom issue is how, what do we really mean when we want to say we want to be free from things? Free from obligation, free from responsibility, because those are the things of citizenship. Free to say and do whatever we want, that's another issue. So those are just some things I wanted to just sort of sprinkle in there as we get near the, uh, the Passover holiday, the eight days. And as a lover of matzah, I actually enjoy Passover. It is not a punishment. <laughs> I get, my mother used to make me, this was embarrassing, my mother used to make me matzah salami sandwiches. So what happens is you bite into it, the matzah crumbles around it, the large cracker crumbles around it, and all you've got left is a disc of salami. This did not go over well at West Prep Public School. That's all I know. It just didn't. Um, um, I'm going to introduce, well, before I introduce my guest, I'm going to tell you who my sponsor is. Uh, Kaplansky's Mustards. That's the sponsor. The Kaplansky's Deli in Terminal 3. Isn't that fantastic? Uh, I, uh, Zane Kaplansky is a great guy who tells a wonderful story. And he has packets of mustard. You can get the signature variety pack, the pick and mix mustard pack, a Kaplansky's t-shirt, uh, and use the promo code NTKR, not that kind of rabbi. Uh, Kaplansky's the deli that isn't kosher and wants you to quit asking about it. It's a long story, Kaplansky's. All right, it's time to actually say hello to my guest, somebody who I haven't seen in person in decades, literally. And um, someone who, when they left, I thought, he's just going to do wonderfully. He's just going to be a force. And I was right. Uh, he ended up being uh, a, a seriously good reporter. And having come from that world of journalism, there's a lot of people who are fine. And there's a lot of people who are not so fine, but there's very few who mix courage, intelligence, and insight. And this particular man did all three of those things, uh, working with uh, CBS, working with ABC, working with CBC. Uh, but now he's on to an entirely different thing. It's called Trent. And it came from his actual profession because he was the guy who was really tired of transcribing things, listening to a tape, stopping it, typing, stopping it, typing. And now he's developed a whole technology that takes that audio and turns it into transcript uh, effortlessly for people. And it's a huge hit. So he's the CEO and the co-founder of Trint. But more importantly to me, he's Jeff Kaufman. Jeffrey Kaufman, welcome to the program. How are you, sir? Ralph, we have not talked and it's been literally a quarter century. It is, <laughs> wow. Uh, uh, you and I were both young bucks at the CBC together and uh, Wow, it sort of feels like a fading color photo uh, from the past. Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, when you look through the, the, the prism of time, as we get older, and, and I'm, I just finished writing a book about getting older, uh, but when we get older, um, you start to say to people, you know, about five, uh, no, 15, no, 25 years ago, <laughs> and the time continuum just stretches. When you... Do you see yourself still through the lens of the, the kid who grew up in Toronto, the Canadian, who just happens to be in all these different places in the world, including now in London? Um, uh, you know, apart from when I try to stand up in the morning, uh, I'm still the kid. You know, my, back, my lower back sometimes <laughs> reminds me that I'm not. Um, 
you know, there are certain things about growing older. I guess it depends what life what what life give, give hands you and what you know what you seek and and you know and 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 fate and circumstance bring. But um, I still kind of think of myself as as a wide eyed kid. And you know, people tease me and they say, "Wow, you know, you you have the passion of a kid." And and you know, to do what what I what I did building this this startup into a scale up this technology company here in London, England. I didn't realize, but you actually need that energy. You need that wide-eyed view of the world because it's hard and you have to be an optimist and you have to... Do you remember those Popeye punching bags with sand in the bottom that we had when we were six years old? Yeah. That's what the, start, the founder of a, of a startup is. But to be honest, it's kind of what being a network correspondent in U.S. television is uh, as too because you get knocked over a lot and you got to either... Uh, find a way to, to to pull yourself back up, or you or you're defeated. So, in a in a strange way, that resilience, that optimism, um, is just a, is a survive is a very strong survival technique um, that that's essential for any of these really hard jobs. Well, I always saw you as somebody who was willing to pick the right fight. You know, I don't know. Sometimes I think I was a coward. I think that you know, when I was younger, I was so concerned about being seen as a as 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 a a good kid that I I was afraid to pick fights uh, for the right thing and I think it was only in my twenties about the time you and I met when we were both uh, before I went to the CBC National News when I was when we were both at CBC Toronto um, the the local news it was around that time uh, uh, that I started to sort of develop a spine it took me some time uh, well, I don't yeah yeah what do you think that was about uh, the truth is that it was about being about uh, being comfortable in my skin as a gay man, uh, because I think that I was wearing a mask as a kid, and you know I I came out in the 1980s uh, when AIDS was uh, around the world and uh, ravaging the world and, and killing uh, people uh, my age and, and older friends of mine, and uh, so it was a very strange time. You know there was a you know we're in the midst of a pandemic where the world is throwing every every resource it can to solve it. Uh, if you go back literally 40 years, nobody cared. Uh, you know, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan famously didn't give a hoot. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, so you really, you know, the, the hardest part about uh, being gay in that, at, in that age was wondering whether you were going to die, uh, whether you were going to live to be 30 and watching, you know, other people die and wondering how people would respond. And so it, it really, at some point, you, you know, I had to reconcile with that. And when I did, it was like, well, you know, so what's your problem? And, and it gave me a huge amount of courage. Yeah. I remember um, your leading the charge in the Jewish community about the rights of, of gay people to equal marriage. Um, holy blossom. Am I wrong? Well, I, I, you know, I wouldn't want to take, you know, I mean, I think it was my, my, my role in, in, in terms of uh, gay marriage was not really a significant one. I wouldn't want to, I think there were a lot of people who did a lot more. I, I, I think, you know, I, I think that my role, my, my significant, my more significant role was about in, in journalism, uh, uh, where there were no role models and where it was really for me. Uh, that was really where where it took. Uh, I was terrified as a kid. I started at Global News in Toronto, and uh, I really believed if they found out I was gay, I was going to lose my job. And you know, I, I honestly believed that, and and it tore me apart. And I thought, oh my God, I'm on TV. I mean, I I remember um, 
being, I was a Queen's Park correspondent, the Ontario legislature. I was a political correspondent at this crazy age of like 24 or 25. Um, and I didn't understand why they gave it to me, apart from the fact I had a political science degree, which didn't really qualify me to do that job anyway. But, <laughs> but it, it, in the end, I did. And I remember being at an aid fundraiser and one of the Ontario cabinet ministers uh, showed up and I literally hid because I was afraid she would think, oh my God, she'd equate. And I, and I was so ashamed of myself and so mad at myself afterwards that I, I thought, wait a minute, what are you doing, you idiot? But you know, you're young and you have to make mistakes yeah. sometimes and learn from them. And you know, uh, I, when I, I look back- You didn't be terrified of, of a tell, of a movement of your body, of a way of saying something, of a person you say hello to that will oh, tell yeah. people you're gay. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the funny thing about it, you know, sort of, you know, fast forward, you know, that was probably 1985. So what are we, 35, 36 years later? You know, when I think, holy cow, you know, I did not see this coming. You know, I, I mean, you know, spending, you know, so many years of my life as a war correspondent uh, with ABC News in Iraq, in the, uh, uh, in the Arab Spring in North Africa, um, you know, covering Latin America, covering revolutions and, you know, in Haiti, which were incredibly dangerous. And I think, wow, um, <laughs> that was pretty tough stuff. And, you know, I did not sort of think I had the spine to do it. I didn't choose to do it. Um, but it sort of, you go into journalism and, you know, I always went into journalism because I believed fundamentally that the, you know, one of the cornerstones of democracy is an informed electorate and that making people, you know, giving people the opportunity to learn and nudging them to be a little uncomfortable in their assumptions uh, uh, was, was at the core of, uh, of, of what journalism should be doing. And so, you know, I remember, you know, when 9-11 happened and I was ABC News correspondent in Miami and they said, we want you to go to Pakistan where they've just kidnapped this Wall Street Journal name, uh, reporter named Daniel Pearl. And, uh, I, as I was packing my bag to go to Karachi, uh, was watching C ABC World News with Peter Jennings, and he said, and they've just put out a fatwa on any American journalist who sets foot in Pakistan. And I'm thinking, I have a flight in three hours, and I'm going there. And I really, and I, I think I literally dropped the clothes I was putting in my suitcase and, and thought, wow, this is, like, this is, this is the real deal. And... I got on that flight and I went there and, you know, uh, it was terrifying, but you learn to compartmentalize your fear. And, you know, as I say, put it in a lockbox, slide it under the bed in your hotel and just focus because at some point you have to be dedicated to it. And, uh, you can't, you can't be blurred by, by fear. You can't have your, your judgment and your vision obscured by it. And so you but do Daniel learn Pearl how was, to deal with that. Yeah, What's Daniel, that? Daniel Pearl was decapitated at, he was decapitated um, well not just as, as an american but as a jew for being and, jewish and there i was as a jewish right. um, uh, canadian but an american journalist in there so yeah i mean i had like a you know and gay too so you know like i was a threefer uh and uh i mean i spent five weeks there living you know and we initially we were in karachi and abc news was terrified of letting us know we were uh islamabad uh, uh, the capital, which was very far from Karachi. And, you know, there we were saying, here's what's going on. It was actually, you know, it's like being in Vancouver and talking about what's going on in Ottawa. And, I, and we said, you know, either we go back to London and do it from London or we go to Islamabad. Uh, or sorry, pardon me, Karachi. I'm getting my cities confused again. We go to Karachi and, and report from where it actually happened. And so they reluctantly let us do that. And um, 
I think we spent three or four weeks there while the while the hunt went on and uh, for, for him and and uh, we just had to be incredibly careful where we went and uh, you know the odd thing was that people there were really friendly. I mean, you know, they weren't menacing. I mean, you know, they're wonderful people as you would expect. It, but you know, it's just a few well, people. That's the thing with news, right? It, the overrepresentation of the extremes is the norm. So, you know, when people say the world is screwed up, everything is screwed up, and then you think, no, no, there's a few billion people walking their kids to school right now and giving them a kiss and saying, love you, have a good day. Uh, it's not one thing, but the one thing can redefine the realities in people's heads. It's a, it's a good observation. Um, you, know, you should go into spiritual leadership. Um, <laughs> no, no, it, 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 it's an, it is a, a funny thing because, you know, it, it, I want to talk a little bit more about sort of that in relation to war, but it reminds me of sort of, I've covered earthquakes and, uh, and you know, you always take the shot of the street that's there, where the houses are shattered. What you don't see in that shot is that a block away, everything is fine. And, 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 you know, that is just the kind of the nature of news. Cause I mean, I always tried in my earthquake stories to put that in perspective, but candidly, a lot of it never made it in the final story because the, the pictures of, of collapsed buildings are so dramatic and they're real. It's not like you're faking it, but what you don't get is that helicopter view that this is one corner. Now, sometimes in earthquakes, it's much broader, uh, but the point being that, yes, it's only what the camera yeah. uh, shows, but, but. You know, to go back to wars, uh, yeah. war zones and what you just said, I think the thing, I think the most surprising thing about being a war correspondent um, that sort of gradually seeped into me is that war is not the bang, bang and the, the bomb, the aftermath of bombs. Most of it is actually complete normalcy, um, you know, punctuated by these moments of horror and terror. And, and so that when you're actually you know, living in Baghdad during the Iraq war uh, or on a forward operating base, uh, with the U.S. Army, it's just normal. It's all fine until it's not. And uh, you know, people are going out and they're buying bread. They're, you know, I, I mean, I, I think there are certain circumstances when, when you know, uh, uh, in, in war, you know, when you have these kind of insurrections. Uh, uh, I think in Lebanon this happened for quite a long time. I never covered uh, the, the, the Lebanese civil war, where you just couldn't go out because there were snipers all the time. But, but you know, in my pretty extensive experience. There is this kind of strange level of normalcy. You know, children go out, they get ice cream uh, in the middle of a war zone because they're children and because their parents want to have as much normalcy as they can. Uh, and then you have these moments of a bomb going off or going to the aftermath of a bomb and seeing sheer, you know, just gut-wrenching horror. So Chris Hedges has written well about being a war correspondent in Bosnia-Herzegovina, for instance. Uh, and has written books about that war gives us meaning. I wonder in having covered, and you've been to places where there is societal breakdown, there is carnage, there is lawlessness, uh, you know, failed states. Do you, what has that done to your faith in people? Either way. Um. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's, yeah, I think it's, 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 uh, I think there, there are two answers to that. On one level, I am in awe of the resilience of the human spirit. I think that, that uh, people live in, uh, and this isn't just in war, I've, I've, you know, in extreme poverty. You know, I've spent a lot of time in Haiti um, 
you know, and, and Cite Soleil in Haiti, there's no war going on, but it is, you know, it is the essence of hell on earth. Um, it is a million and a half, give or take, people living in basically a, um, you know, a, a slum that is beyond despair. Um, it, it's just, you know, open sewage. Uh, living in shacks, shanties made of nothing, and so, so, but, but you take that and then take, add add a war to it in Haiti, you know, civil war in Haiti, or, or um, the horrors of uh, of uh, Iraq, covering Libya, Tunisia, Egypt. Uh, I think that the thing about uh, uh, the thing that informs me from from war is that people are incredibly resilient, and so, you know, in the midst of this pandemic around coronavirus, it's devastating, it's hurting people, it's killing people. But I do actually believe that that uh, the optimist in me has seen has seen the world tested, and there will be tragically, you know, serious casualties and death because of coronavirus, and some of it inexcusably unnecessary because of the neglect of the you know in, in the UK government, the American government, the Brazilian government, etc. Uh, but the fact is, we will we will I have no doubt we will figure this out and we will get through it um, at some cost, not to dis, you know not to dismiss it. So so I I do see. Um, the resilience of the human spirit. Um, and, and, you know, before I talk to you about the other side, it reminds me, um, you know, I mean, one of the things that I, I, I say about my experience is, is that um, our worst day is better than a lot of people's best day. So don't lose, you know, don't, don't forget that, you know. Uh, even, you know, sitting here in London or, or you know, where you are, in, you know, outside of Toronto, um, you know, there are a lot of people going through real hardship and, you know, their jobs are, are, are gone or, you know, their businesses are upside down. And, and I have huge amounts of empathy. But when you've seen what, what, I've, you know, what I've seen in wars and in poverty, those people would love to have our problems. I mean, I, you know, but we have to live our lives and we have to figure navigate our own, our own paths. Um, I do remember once coming back from Iraq and I was on assignment, and I, I don't remember what, this, what I was doing, but I was in Philadelphia airport on a very rainy day, and everybody who travels has, has had this experience where all the flights are late, and you're sitting literally on the floor because there are no seats left in the lounges, and it's like, oh my God, my flight's four hours late. What am I going to do? And I just don't want to be here, but I've got to get to wherever I was going. And I remember, yeah, I literally, I'd been back from Iraq, I don't know, maybe two or three weeks, but it stays with you, let me tell you. And I remember this old man sitting across from me at the gate, waiting for the, the plane to be boarded, which wasn't happening. And he said to his wife, this is the worst day of my life. And I heard myself say, sir, I guess you've had a pretty good life then. <laughs> and he turned beet red. And I, I was slightly, I couldn't, but I just thought, what are you talking about? You know, I mean, okay, it's a pain in the butt that your flight's four hours late. I hate it too, but really, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it's, I mean, it, it, it's interesting. Uh, there's a choice. I find myself in, uh, to digress a moment, in airports, uh, really being able to switch on the Zen part of who I am. You have to, yeah. Right? That, is the, that, that, is the, that is the key to being a good traveler. But I want to answer the flip side of your question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is what about, you know, the, the evil side? And, I, and I, I think that our ability... I have seen it, and our ability as human beings to switch off morality, to 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 rationalize evil, is a really uh, you know listen. History is full of it, and you know I don't need to give you examples, but but it is it is a very real uh, component of of you know uh, 
be, being uh, human and, and it is, I think we all have it in us, but you know, we, we hope that our better angels are going to k- k- suppress it and that, you know, the, the goodness of our souls and uh, just a fundamental moral compass uh, will 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 keep us away from that, and I think most of us generally do, certainly from extreme evil. Um, but I I wouldn't, you know, I, I I don't think you can underestimate, and we you know, history shows us, good people can be persuaded and 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 pushed to do evil things, and uh, it is. Um, it doesn't. You 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 never want to justify what they've done, but I think it's it's uh, it's way too complex to say. Oh my gosh, I wouldn't have done that. I mean, I I think it's yeah. it's it's a really really complicated thing to witness evil and to wonder what exactly um, allows you to do this. <clears throat> but you so you've spoken to people who have just finished doing something that we could say is evil. I'm sure, mm-hmm. right? Um, in that moment after, would you have known that they were capable of doing this? Did they just seem completely normal? Did you know, how do I judge the eyes I'm looking into here? I mean, it, I, I, I once challenged um, a guerrilla leader in Haiti during the, the civil war there in a press conference. And uh, I think I was probably pretty, pretty, it was pretty bad judgment on part. He had killed quite a lot of people. And you know, I think I asked him how many people have you, you know, killed during the Civil War, and he, you know, and he got really pissed off. Right. And my team said, "I think we got to get you out of here," because uh, he was really. Why did you do it? Because I felt he should be held accountable, and I thought that he, you know, I wanted to use, you know, I was recording, and it was a press conference, and he was talking about himself, and I just said, you know, so how many people have you know have you actually killed during, the, in, you know, in, in getting to this point? And he, uh, I remember my my team was like. I'm not sure that was the smartest question. It, it might not have been, you know, I, I, but at the same time, I did feel like he should be challenged and, and held accountable. And, you know, the way he dodged the, the answer kind of spoke, you know, about you know, who he is. But that being said, uh, um, you know, I, I think the answer is what you would expect. In, some, in, in most cases, no, they're just normal people who have done. Uh, it, I, I think this, I talked earlier about compartmentalizing fear. Yeah. This compartmentalizing is, is part of the human condition. We can compartmentalize, um, and it's a good thing. You know, sorrow, grief, um, you have to, to, to move on in life. At some point, you've got to just, you know, put the, those things uh, in a place in your, yeah, you know. Yeah, I'm a fan as well of, 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 like when people talk to me about, you know, why would I even bother with anything in religion? One of the things I point to is ritual. That there are rituals that really help a person to, incorporate into themselves to integrate into themselves the good and the bad uh the passages into uh, adulthood the the marriage ritual the uh the shiva dying ritual in jewish tradition every every culture has its i i agree i agree you're right they do they do and there's a reason there's a social reason Um, right so it's not i don't see that as much as compartmentalizing my grief for instance but it's finding a place to put it and a structure within it should work. So seven days with everybody, a month, a headstone, 11 months, you rise up and it's over. That helps a person go, there is a, a timeline and a light at the end of this tunnel, as opposed to- Yeah, 
uh, we, we can we, we can debate the use the, the, the term I, I accept that in this in in that context um, uh, but I think that you know when I use the word compartmentalize I think that we can almost disconnect the wires to that part of our of our soul uh, and uh, certainly for evil uh, I, but I think also for, for pain, I think, you know, that we've endured and, and come through. I think that, and, and sometimes it's a coping mechanism. Uh, but I do think that, you know, when you talk about evil, I think that there is this switch uh, that exists that yeah. uh, people sometimes pull and it allows them to do terrible things. And it may be cheating their partner uh, and, uh, out of money. It may be stealing. It may be something, you know, more physically violent. Uh, yeah. So when you, the things you've seen, you can't unsee. Uh, where do you put them in you? That's a really interesting question. Um, so do you remember those Kodachrome slides we had as kids on a carousel, the round carousels? Uh, I mean, a lot of listeners who are younger wouldn't know, but you know, before before there was there was digital photography, the best pictures were, 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 were color slides yeah. that you would show on a projector and they had beautiful carousel. deep colors. What's that? Carousel. And you'd put them in a carousel and you'd show, show people your, your, your trip. Uh, you know, you, what, what it was you, you were, uh, where, where you'd been. For me, I have this, uh, if I have this carousel of horror that I've witnessed over the years that sits somewhere in the recesses of my brain. And it is, you know, as I'm speaking, I'm starting to see the images. I can see the, 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 the bloated bodies in Tripoli uh, when they attacked anybody who was black and put spears through them and they just left them to bake in the sun. And it was just, um, you know, I can see uh, people with limbs missing and bodies and, you know, a soldier who died in front of me and you know, all of that. I think um, the... And what happens as I talk about it is I can feel my, my throat constricting. There's kind of a physiological response because it's really powerful stuff. What's interesting for me about that is that I don't have nightmares and I don't think about those images unless someone like you asks me about those images. And then they flood in and there, there, there they are. I mean, some of those images are 20 years old and they're still, that carousel, they're still in living color in my brain but for reasons that I don't know that I can explain, I don't wake up in cold sweats in the middle of the night remembering those things. I don't, um, I don't have nightmares about them, uh, but they're there. Uh, and, and I guess that's when I talk about compartmentalizing somehow. Li listen, I think if you are an ambulance driver, uh, you know, an ambulance attendant, a paramedic, you see a lot of bad things. If you're uh, a fire a fireman, you see a lot of bad things. Uh, you, know, a, you know, a trauma surgeon. I think, you know, war is much more extreme in the kind of the, the randomness and cruelty of it. Uh, but I, I think that people in all those professions have to deal with something like that. And somehow, um, I, I have a friend here in London, a Canadian who's a, a paramedic, and I asked him about it. I said, what do you do with all those images? Because, uh, you know, he picks people, you know, dead bodies up from under, under trucks and uh, stuff. And, and he says, I, I, you know, I just don't think about them. I put them away. And, and, and I, you know, what else would you want them to do? You know, I think if you can't do that, you couldn't continue do, doing that job. Yeah, as long as, long as we can know they're there. Because we have wounds, we have to tend to the wound. And if we just hope the wound just goes away, sometimes it, it, it will take us. It'll I don't know if it's a wound. I think it's... Uh... 
Well, it's hard on the heart to watch. You uh, know, yeah, for sure. Carnage of life. Even for sure. I watched a, a 21 year old American soldier who had, um, had severe, uh, who had shrapnel in his brain die on the, on the, the operating table in front of me. And I will never forget that. I mean, you know, it was, I, 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 there was actually, I did a lot of work cover in Iraq on battlefield medicine. And I, um, at one point through, had to get a huge amount of permission from the U S army, did a piece on, on, on front, uh, frontline medicine and trauma, uh, it was really fascinating, and and we were in Balad, the U.S. Army base uh, north of north of uh, Baghdad, for some time, and um, following the. And it was very much like Mash, the show that you and I watched in the seventies, um, um, uh, that took the, the Mobile Army Surgical Hospital in in Korea with Alan Alda, the the, the sitcom that that sort of shaped our childhood. This was kind of a modern version of that. It was a it was a series of tents, but with equipment that was really, really uh, cutting edge. And we were essentially, the agreement was we, we were shooting what was what was going on there. We, we were doing a documentary for ABC News Nightline. And um, there was a, what they basically did was they collected um, all the people who needed to go to Ramstein, the American military hospital in Germany. And they waited until there was a severe trauma that had to be, uh, had to be transported immediately. And there was a I think it's a C-17, the big, huge transport jet. And, and essentially, when that trauma came in, they would stabilize the soldier. And then they would say, okay, all the people who have, you know, who have been waiting, who are stable, who have smaller injuries, um, you got, you know, we're heading out in, in three hours as soon as this guy's, you know, out of OR. And so that this happened. And it was, it was, you know, we went a couple of days without sleeping. Uh, and I remember the helicopter came in at night and they said, uh, we have a guy who's just, uh, had, uh, uh, his intestines ripped apart by shrapnel. Uh, he's a young soldier. Uh, he's going to go into OR in the moment, you know, if we, if he comes out alive, we're going to, we're going to take off. We weren't in the OR for that part. It was, it was really, you know, touch and go. And, um, we get on the C-17 on this trans, this huge transport plane. And it was like a medieval tableau. They literally had gurneys strapped to the floor where, you know, it was, it's a cargo plane. And, and where the rollers are, they had literally strapped gurneys. And, and there maybe were, I don't know, 50 or more uh, soldiers with injuries. Um, some of them fairly minor, but needed to be taken out. Um, and then this one guy who... Uh, was severely, severely injured. And he was using brand new technology, which was a mobile intensive care unit, which had only been invented um, in, in around 2000. It didn't exist in the, the, uh, the Gulf War in uh, the early 90s. And I remember saying to the surgeon, you know, is this guy going to survive? He said, absolutely. We've got, we're pumping antibiotics into him. His, his stomach is resected, but uh, his bowels resected, but, but, but that can be fixed. I have absolute confidence, you know, when we get him to Ramstein, we can put him back together. And I said, would he have survived previous wars? He said, World War II, not a chance. Korea, not a chance. Vietnam, I doubt it. Gulf War, maybe. Now, yes. Mm. And I remember looking around on that plane and uh, there was a, a young soldier. The agreement was you, know, you didn't put, shoot faces without permission. And if, the, if they weren't conscious, you didn't shoot the face at all. And, and of course, you know, you honor that. And there was a 19-year-old soldier who um, had lost his foot to a landmine. 
uh, or a bomb or something. And, and I, I went up to him and I said, hey, you know, here's who we are. And normally you don't say this as a journalist, but I, I began by saying, please feel free to say no. I mean, <laughs> normally you do not say that, but in this circumstance, you know, you, 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 I did. And I, I said, you know, here's, and I'm with ABC News and we're shooting this documentary on, on battlefield medicine. And, and uh, but, but, you know, if you don't want to be part of it, it's okay. And I, I, I must've said it two or three times because I really didn't want to yeah. uh, uh, pressure the guy. And I remember him saying to me, just my heart just cracked. He said, sir, I'm having a really rough time uh, getting my head around the fact I don't have a right foot. Is it okay if I pass? <laughs> and, you know, I still get my, I still tear up when I think about it. It's like, oh my God, it's absolutely okay. You know, it's like, yeah. yes. You, you, wouldn't have, yeah. you wouldn't have given him the out if you hadn't sensed that you weren't just walking up to somebody that there was already a grievous loss on his part. Yeah, I mean, normally you don't, when you go up to somebody, you know, in, as, a, as a reporter, generally you don't begin a sentence by saying it's yeah. okay if you say no. I mean, you, you know, if they say no, you respect it, but it's not. Um, and I remember sitting down, I, we hadn't slept, I was exhausted, and um, all of the, the American soldiers wore these black bracelets for, for comrades who died and with the name, you know, say, you know, Corporal so-and-so, and, and, and they all had them because there had been quite a lot of deaths, and, and some of them had two or three, and it was just a way to memorialize one of their, their unit uh, uh, buddies. And I, I, I suddenly I was overcome with emotion, and I went behind one of the cargo containers and just sat down and just bawled my eyes out. And I just, I, I was, I just felt like, oh my God, this is the price of, you know, the, 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 these are the Americans. I mean, think of the Iraqis who don't yeah. even have access to this medical care. And, you know, this is what war does. And, and uh, it, it, it was, it was just, it was just such a, it, it was a really, it, it, it was just so much to process all, all of it, to see, to see it. And, and then you think this is modern medicine. Imagine what war was like, you know, 50, 100 years ago. Oh my God. Well, infection alone killed most people. But, you know, I just flashed back on, on the airport where you're waiting four hours and the guy says, this is the worst day of my life. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> really? What are you thinking? Right, let me ask you something. Um, where does your Jewishness come into your life? You know, um, I... I I think for I think I didn't grow up in a very Jewish environment in Toronto, and so for me, um, you, know, uh, you know, we went to synagogue, but it was more so it, it was not a deeply religious experience for me. It was more of a cultural experience, and um, my mother's family uh, were all German Jews who'd uh, come to the U.S. and Canada um, in the mid sort of eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties. So, so we're extremely assimilated. Right. So I actually had a Christmas tree as a kid, as well as a menorah. You know, I, I um, so, but we never had Christmas with Christ. It was just uh, presents, and um, and it was, but it was a kind of, it was a, uh, it was a, a really sort of schizophrenic uh, sense of of, of place. Um, and so for me, um, I think it took me time to kind of understand what. The, sort of the, the cultural heritage of, of Jew, Judaism is what the spiritual heritage is. Um, and so for me, it, it's, it's never been a deeply religious journey. I think what it is, is, is uh, a place of pride of, of the culture, the history, the values. And I think that that does inform me. And I think, um, you know, I, I think in a certain way, um, 
my parents didn't like it when I said this. I remember they're they're, they're, they're sadly long gone. Uh, but you know, I remember that you know coming to terms with being Jewish for me was a bit like coming to terms with being gay because I grew up as an outsider in the Jewish community and and uh, as a, an outsider in you know in in the more uh, in the Gentile world. And so um, it was you know finding that place was 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 also a journey. You went to Upper Canada College too, right? Which is not exactly a bastion of Yiddish. We, we used to call it Lonsdale Heights Collegiate. Just <laughs> people didn't know what it was. <laughs> um, I did. And, and you know, I mean, I wasn't the only Jewish kid. Um, and, and the reality is my mother's father went. He was head boy in 1908. Ooh. I mean, so, you know, it was never a religious school, but it's a, you know, it's a, stu a stuffy, uh, you know, um, you know, an old boys prep school. It's an old boys school. Um, listen, I got a great education. Um, I think it uh, forever scarred me um, <laughs> when it came to uh, um, uh, sort of competitive sports and stuff. It was just so much focused on winning in, in the most insidious ways, and, and I think it was really bad about that. I think there yeah. things are better now, but it was it was all about you know. It was all about, it wasn't about how you played the game. It was about winning. I mean, they claimed it was about how yeah. you played. The game, but it was, it, it was uh, uh, you know, I have I, had zero interest in spectator sports um, in my entire life. And I'm sure that that sort of competitive sports, you know, I, I now at this stage of my life, I do uh, really serious long distance uh, road cycling. Um, but I don't go, I've gone, been in, I've been in some competitive sportives. I'm no interest in them. I just like to do it. I, I, you know, I compete against myself um, yeah, yeah. and I'm really happy doing that. And, you know, I, I actually am, am probably in better shape now than I, you know, apart from some periods of my life than I've ever been, because I just continue to, particularly in lockdown, I just continue to work out at home and cycle. And, um, you know, uh, you said that six packs uh, are partly are, are about how much you work out. They're actually about diet. Really? <laughs> what you eat. Yeah. I think it's probably, they'll tell you it's two thirds of what you eat and one third how much exercise you do. So do you, would you say, what's your relationship to spirituality then? I think that I believe in a fundamental value of goodness, you know, and I've, I, I, I think it's maybe a bit cute to say that God and good are almost the same word, but I, but, but I do actually believe that. And I, I think that we know uh, internally uh, and we can, and, and, and the people we, we respect uh, no, uh, help us st stay on course. What is the right thing to do? What is the good thing to do? And I, I fundamentally think that 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 spirituality is about finding that route to being a, to being a good person, a good citizen, uh, a, a, a doing good things, and and exhibiting those behaviors. And I think that uh, I think that spirituality plays into community. And it plays into how we how we process behaviors we see, and trying to assume good intentions, uh, trying to check our own bad sort of thing, the, the behaviors that, that that ultimately are destructive. Um, uh, you know, I I I I remember saying to people who wanted to work for my my startup Trint. You know, when I in the early days when they wanted when they said what what are the values before we'd come up with things like value statements, and I. I remember just in the middle of an interview to some prospective employee, I said, well, I guess it's the three B's, uh, no bullshit, no bitching, no backstabbing. Um, and, and I, I, I think that, what's that? Those are the negative commandments. 
don't well care. yeah i mean i guess I, I i guess they are but i i think that's you know i i think spirituality is I don't. I don't know if I'm a deeply spiritual person, but I believe I have really strong a strong sense of morality and values, and 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 I I really really passionately believe in challenging ourselves to be uh, to do good things and 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 to to do good things that 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 uh, make the, in small ways push the world to, to aspire to to better things, and I think you know that was always what motivated my journalism. Um, yeah, but as a CEO, I also noticed in, in, in looking and reading certain things that you've been doing with Trent, um, it sounds to me very much like you t you care deeply about the employee and the employee experience. That you're not just you over here, you my office. You know, you're 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 going okay. Mental health. Can Low we do a separate podcast on managing millennials, please? Yeah. Um, <laughs> they're not the same as you and me just for the record yeah. um, um, you know I do care I mean I, I think that um, uh, I worked for a lot of really bad bosses and I, I've said to the team my aspiration is to be the boss I, I wish I had but never had and, and candidly you know the company's approaching 100 people it's really hard particularly in lockdown where we've, you know, we've hired more than 60 people since since lockdown, and uh, so I haven't met more than almost two thirds of my team in face to face. It is really hard to create culture and values yeah. um, in a company remotely. We we we've worked really really strongly to do it, and I think with some success. But you know, um, the inability to read people to to just sort of say, "Hey, what's on your mind? You look upset." Uh, is really really difficult with these with Zoom calls and you know and and Slack and email and and uh, you know I think it's it really really uh, handicaps you. But but I do believe in values. I mean I I think you know uh, I I really believe I think it's really fun as a boss to uh, find ways to position uh, employees to 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 achieve and and excel and surprise themselves. Uh, and, and, and I think it's, it's incredibly rewarding. And, you know, I say to them, and, and I believe this about, I, I think you, you, this, maybe this is, this, this is, this is the title of the bio, my, my autobiography that I'm not sure I'll ever write, but it, but it's, it, you know, it's about the journey, not the destination. Right. Indeed. That's the thing is, uh, if it isn't, if it's about the destination, then the actions are transactional. What's yeah. in it for me? How am I going to get there? Are you uh, the utility of a person? Martin Buber's book, I and Thou. There's I and it relationships. What you so we're, we're we've both been to the party where people look over our shoulder to see if somebody with more influence could be perhaps corralled into a conversation or <laughs> uh, and yet the I and Thou is seeing the sacred part of yourself and the sacred part of the person you're talking to. But it's a, it's a, a thou relationship, a respectful one. And we live in a, in a commodity-driven uh, economy and society, which means people are commodities. People are units. Extractive capitalism takes things out of people and out of resources, right? Ralph, you know, what I think is really, uh, in this tragic pandemic, I think one of the things that I really observe is that people like me, who lived really, really fast lives, spending a lot of time traveling, a lot of time rushing from meeting to meeting. Um, you know, you, you, can, you can find yourself being busy, being busy in life, and then suddenly find that the, the, the decades go by. And, you know, I remember meeting uh, these New York socialites who just went, you know, went to parties, you know, 
five, six nights a week and, you know, had lunches. And it was like, it, and I remember saying, really, do you enjoy it? And, and I remember this, this woman saying to me, I would be so bored if I didn't have this I, sitting at home. I, 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 this, is, this is my lifeblood. And I remember thinking, wow, that's, that's a dependency. And, yeah. uh, uh, well, you're adrenaline junkies in reporting, right? That's exactly my point, that I think a lot of us live that life in different ways. And I think what's happened with this uh, lockdown is it's just forced us all to slow down and stop and sort of, in a certain way, get off the hamster wheel of life. And, and I, I wonder whether it will have a residual effect I think to a certain degree in, in business and travel it will because I think we've now been forced to uh, online and we've discovered that certain things now through technology don't require that we travel to Tokyo for a one hour lunch meeting. Um, you know, we, we can probably do it on, on, on a video call. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think that we have created a society, you know, and if you look at the consumer society, shopping malls, you know, just, you know uh, fast fashion, where, where everything's about gratification. And yeah. I think that what, where, what's happened with lockdown and, and uh, isolation is that suddenly we've had to find sustenance elsewhere. And, and also um, the, the inequities of, of, of how we're living, the, the way we treat our elders, the way we treat each other, uh, the, the, the lack of, of, of social safety net for people, the, those all are being laid bare in our societies and the inequities in what people make at the top and what everybody else makes have become so extreme and obscene that you wonder what effect will be on that because there, you know, even in the middle of the pandemic, we had uh, the American, what I like to call the slow motion American civil war was still in full bloom. You had you know fighting on the streets. It's, there's a lot going on that we can just say, oh, it's no big deal, but there are profound shifts that could happen and climate change itself, climate destruction will probably be the thing that pushes us over those edges into climate refugees, into more pandemics, into all kinds of... Uh, I, I, think that's, I think that actually, I think you're, you're probably right, but I actually think that we're going through that now in a, in a, not, a not necessarily an apocalyptic, but may, maybe way with with the internet and sort of the, the way we communicate and i think what you talk about the, the slow motion american civil war is fuel you know was fueled by social media and by you know the ability of people to you know uh, uh sort of through the anonymity sitting sitting you know in, in their pajamas at home uh, firing off misses on on twitter yeah. and, and and other places without any accountability responsibility uh and you know creating you know lies because it uh, they either believed them, they wanted people to believe them, or just because they, or just because they, they got their jollies. And I think what's you know for me, it's really fascinating to watch Joe Biden. I mean, I think Joe Biden, had he been successful as president in his previous runs, might have been an okay president. But I think Biden is actually positioned now to potentially be a really uh, significant, you know, a, you know, a really important president in American history because he has already calmed down the discourse. And, you know, he's just passed this massive uh, uh, aid package, which will bring in, a, for the first time, a child tax credit to the U.S., which is, you know, as significant as, as the kind of things that were done by FDR. And, uh, you know, I think it is really fascinating to see where that part of the American uh, journey goes, because there, there are just there's so many open sores now in that, in that country. But you okay. said at the beginning that, you know, populism... And, and fascism, you know, have sudden, you know, have, have, have reared themselves again. 
I think enabled by social media. I think you know we've got to figure out how not to not to to suppress free speech, but to hold people accountable in in the in the cesspit of, of yeah, social media. Yeah, a simple tool of you have to identify yourself as who you are would would solve a fair amount of problems. I think. Easier said than done. I mean, oh, it, well, it, it, I completely agree with you. If you could do it, it's a great idea. I, I'm not sure it's given the the the, the way social media you know has has. Uh, evolved, it, whether you, you can put that genie back in the bottle. But uh, if you can come up with a way to do that, Ralph, you, yeah. you know, you, you'll save the planet. <laughs> Mr. Kaufman, I, I'm going to say goodbye. Uh, it has been absolutely wonderful to talk to you. It's been so long since I've seen you, but uh, it's good to see you in such fine form. And uh, my heart goes to you for all the things that you've witnessed for all of us throughout your career. Uh, you know, I always used to say to people, the thing about journalism is you're the one who keeps your eyes open when everybody else has closed them. And you're one of those. So I've always loved that about what, what you've done with your work. It, it, you know, I, I, even though I, I wince at so many of those, those, the, the horror, I've also seen an awful lot of wonderful things in, in the world. And, you know, we, as usual, look at you, you're a typical journalist. You've had me talk about all the negative stuff, but you haven't, you know, I, I covered Latin America for 10 years. It was one of the great joys of my life. I mean, I saw, I covered, you know, stories of, of hardship and poverty and earthquakes and, and, and civil wars, but I also covered a lot of really fantastic people doing extraordinary things. And so, you know, I, I, I think I've been really lucky. Uh, you know, wow! Uh, it has. Uh, when I think when I when I think about all those opportunities, you know, all the places I've seen, the the the, the, the people I've met, the challenges, um, and and the creative outlet that I've I've been given, you know, by working for CBC, CBS, ABC, um, uh, you know, in that bucket list of life, I I, I feel re really uh, incredibly grateful to have had these opportunities. Tell uh, people where they can find out more about Trent. Uh, Trent.com. Trent's a word that I, I invented uh, for transcription and interview. So, uh, so it's a, I, I think it's a, either a portmanteau or a neologism where you, you uh, compress two words to create a new word. I'm and, thinking uh, portmanteau, but I'll have to look it up. <laughs> yeah. It, well, it, it is. It's yes. And, and uh, so, yeah, Trent.com. Uh, we take conversations like this and turn them into something you can create a story out of. Uh, um, and, and podcasts like this are built with Trent. Beautiful. My friend, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. It's great to connect, Ralph. I, what a surprise. Yeah. I think it's more than 25 years. Uh, like that. It's, been, it's been enough. We've had a life and now we're Thanks here. for reaching out. Thanks. It's this is not. I do a lot of podcasts. They're mostly about my journey as an entrepreneur. This is this is the first time I, I've I've gone to some of these areas. So um, I, it, it's actually really really um, really interesting to be asked, taken off my my normal message track into areas where I don't actually normally talk publicly. Well, that's um, what journalists so are supposed to be for to take you off your usual message track. Yeah, <laughs> you, you did it, Ralph. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Take care of yourself. Okay. Thanks. Uh, thanks again to Kaplansky's Deli. It makes Jeff Kaufman laugh, but it's a mustard for God's sake, and it's a good one. And you can be a Terminal 3 when Jeff arrives in Toronto the next time. He can go to Kaplansky's Deli and say, I, I know who you are. This is so cool. Uh, they make a great smoked meat sandwich. Uh, look, if you actually, 
I really do like your mustards. I have them in a home and I have a t-shirt that they have a great t-shirt called kicking it old shul. That's a good one. I like that one. They've got some great stuff on their website. Uh, you can go and uh, check them out at Kaplansky's uh, 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 and say NTKR in the promo code and you'll get it. You'll get a discount. They'll give you some money off the thing with the meat. And the, you don't eat meat. Sorry, that's from my big fat great wedding. Um, <laughs> that's it for me. I'm Ralph Benberger. You take care of each other. Check out the Facebook page for Not That Kind of Rabbi. And we're going Patreon finally. So uh, hopefully you can help support this podcast and make sure that I get to talk to wonderful people like Mr. Kaufman every once in a while. Take care. Bye-bye. podcast has been produced by TMDS and accelerated by Rome Phone. Rome Phone brings you the most reliable virtual phone service to run your business and protect your home number from unwanted calls. Visit romephone.ca to get started.